city Aisha came from a tiny, impoverished village in Indonesia. When she was just in her teens, she took a job as a seamstress in Jakarta in order to make money to help her family. It was a sweatshop, and she typically worked 17-hour days. She started a relationship with the son of the sweatshop owner. They got married and had a son, and all of this by the time she was 17. But within three years, they were divorced, and Siti, still looking for better job opportunities, made the painful choice to leave her son behind with her ex-husband's family and leave Indonesia for the country of Malaysia. There were good jobs available in Kuala Lumpur, she'd heard. She was hired by the Flamingo, an upscale hotel by a lake. Her official job title was masseuse, although in Malaysia, this is often a euphemism for sex work. We don't know one way or the other, but we do know that whatever city's professional responsibilities were, they weren't providing enough money for her and her family back home. She looked for after-hours work in nearby clubs and bars, and this is what she was doing on an afternoon in January of 2017, sitting outside a nightclub during her job search, when a cab driver she knew told her that a friend of his was looking for a couple of young women to appear in some funny videos. Don Chi Huang came from Vietnam, where she worked in food service. Unlike City, she didn't come from an impoverished background. She came from a successful family of farmers. She performed well in school and earned a college degree in accounting. But in a male-dominated culture, she struggled to find a long-term job with her accounting skills. So she waited on tables and started to pick up jobs as an actress and model. She even appeared on Vietnam Idol, their country's version of the internationally popular singing competition. Media profiles of her life have also speculated that she was involved in sex work as well at this time, but we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that, like City, Huang was a young woman working hard and looking for opportunities. Now just a side note for a moment about the names. Indonesian naming culture puts the given name first, like in America, so we'll refer to Siti Aisha as Siti. But in Vietnam, the given name is last, so we'll refer to Don Chi Huang as Huang. Huang had a friend in Hanoi who co-owned a bar. This friend, Huynh Bi Tuye, said that a man had entered her bar one night and introduced himself as Lee, a half-Korean, half-Vietnamese producer. Lee told her that he was producing a show and offered her an acting job. Tui had a son to take care of and had no interest in acting, but she told Lee that she had a good friend who could be perfect for the job. So, in January of 2017, Huang met Lee, and just like City, she was offered the chance to make money by appearing in some funny videos. She was told it was for a prank show, which would be filmed with a hidden camera. Huang had actually appeared on a prank show already, and Lee seemed legitimate enough, so she took the job. But it was all a setup. There was no prank show, and what City and Huang actually did was to smear the chemical components of VX nerve agent onto the face of Kim Jong-nam, the eldest brother of the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. They were the instruments who carried out his assassination. And in our previous episode, we told you about the history of North Korea and the Kim family, and the apparent motive for this elaborate and bizarre murder. But as incredible as all this sounds, the nightmare these two women found themselves in was far from over. Throughout their lives, they had been exploited by poverty, by sexism, and now the exploitation was coming from international politics. 
They were set up to take the fall for the people who've actually planned this crime. And what followed as multiple nations got pulled into this ugly diplomatic aftermath had nothing to do with justice. They were imprisoned, cut off, their lives dangling in the balance. And even though the world almost completely denied them a role and a voice in deciding their fate, we wanted to tell this story in a way that kept these two human lives front and center. Hi, this is M.F. Thomas, and this is the My Dark Path podcast. In every episode, we explore the fringes of history, science, and the paranormal. So if you geek out over these subjects, you're among friends here at My Dark Path. And since friends stay in touch, reach out to us on Instagram, sign up for our newsletter at mydarkpath.com, or just send an email to explore at mydarkpath.com. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, thanks for listening and choosing to walk the dark paths of the world with me. And let's get started with episode 21, Assassination by Prank, Part 2, The Women Who Were Pawns to Everyone. Part 1. In 1968, a team of 31 North Korean soldiers infiltrated South Korea. Their mission was to raid the South Korean presidential home, commonly known as Blue House, and assassinate South Korean President Park Chung-hee. The attempt didn't go well. While taking cover in the mountains outside the capital city of Seoul, their unit was actually discovered by hikers. Now, they hadn't planned for this contingency and... Not knowing what to do, the North Korean soldiers lectured the hikers about communism, warned them very sternly not to tell anyone what they'd seen, and then let them go. The hikers, to their credit, went straight to the police. The North Korean soldiers were skilled enough to stay hidden, though, and made it within just 100 meters of Blue House, disguised in South Korean military uniforms. But a single police officer had the presence of mind to call out the code word required for clearance. And when they failed to respond correctly, he raised the alarm. He was killed almost instantly, but it's likely this act on his part that saved the life of South Korean's president. And there's a memorial dedicated to him in Seoul that remains to this day. When the North Koreans' cover was blown, a horrible gun battle erupted. At least 90 South Koreans were killed, including many civilians, but the invaders were repelled. Only one was taken alive. Many of the others took their own lives rather than be captured. Then in 1983, South Korean's president was Chun Do-hwan, and he also faced an assassination plot. He was going to lay a wreath at a mausoleum in Yangon, which was the capital of Burma. Three assassins from North Korea were waiting there with bombs, and just by chance, the president's vehicle was caught in traffic and the assassins, mistakenly believing that he had arrived, set off one of their bombs prematurely. Seventeen South Korean government officials and four Burmese citizens were killed in the blast. So, North Korea has a long history of making violent, audacious attempts to strike at its perceived enemies. But after these high-profile disasters, which both failed at their objective and claimed large numbers of innocent lives, their methods attempted to become more subtle. For example, in October of 2008, a woman from North Korea was tried and convicted in South Korea for attempting to orchestrate the murder of a number of South Korean intelligence officials. 
Needles laced with poison were her weapon of choice. In August of 2011, a South Korean Christian pastor in the city of Dandong suddenly collapsed and died. He was known to help defectors escape North Korea into China. His killers were never caught, but investigators believe that he fell victim to the same poison-tipped needles that they had seen North Korea use before. And just days later, another pastor in China who worked with North Korean defectors was stabbed, this time with a poison-tipped knife, but he managed to survive. North Korean agents have always been willing to cross borders and engage in dramatic, high-risk attempts to eliminate their enemies. But when it came to the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, nothing about it resembled the pattern of previous schemes. It was far more brazen and strange and more public than recent assassination attempts. In broad daylight in a busy international airport terminal with security cameras watching everywhere. One theory is that Kim Jong-un just didn't want his older half-brother dead, but wanted him openly humiliated as he died. The cameras and eyewitnesses gave Malaysian investigators all the information they needed to piece together what had happened and how it had occurred. But as for who had done this, all the authorities had were Sidi Aisha and Don Chi Huang. They weren't North Korean, had no political or military background, and no apparent reason to murder someone in broad daylight. But they had an extraordinary story to tell about how they came to be there on that day. Siddy followed that cab driver friend of hers and met a man who called himself James. James said that he was from Japan, but this was a lie. He said that they were producing a prank show. Her job would be to sneak up on unsuspecting passersby and smear lotion or baby oil on them. Hidden cameras would capture her performing these pranks. James gave her some baby oil and invited her to test her sneaking skills, a trial run, if you will. Siddy pulled off the trick, approaching a stranger from behind and rubbing the oil on her skin. James paid her $96 on the spot, and a dollar will buy you about twice as much in Malaysia as it does in America. This was a lot of money for just a few minutes of work, and Siddy was sold. She performed this prank repeatedly in public and getting well compensated every time. And after a few weeks, she was introduced to a new producer whom she knew as Mr. Chang. Mr. Chang was able to communicate with her a bit better. James usually used Google Translate. And when Mr. Chang saw her in action, they decided to up the stakes, asking her to try a practice run at Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Meanwhile, Do Chi Huang was following a similar track with the man she knew as Lee, who was, in reality, a North Korean agent named Ri Ju Huang. Remember, Huang had actually participated in a prank show before. Plus, she had studied accounting, so when the producers asked her how much money she'd like to make in a month, Huang aimed high. She asked for $1,000, and the producers agreed right away. Just like Siddy, she performed several rehearsal pranks and proved herself capable of swiftly approaching someone and pulling off the move. To both women, it seemed like a fairly ridiculous prank, but in the age of social media and clickbait, it didn't seem any weirder than a lot of other things that catch on. And the night before Kim Jong-nam's fatal trip to the airport, Siddy was at the Hard Rock Cafe with some friends. It was her 25th birthday, and she had a little more money in her pocket than usual. 
Huang was at a hotel near the airport. Later on, authorities found security footage of her at the hotel, footage that showed her with her arms wrapped around a giant teddy bear. Huang said that the bear was actually given to her by her handlers so that she could practice wrapping her arms around someone from behind. The next morning was February 13th. North Korea's agents knew that Kim Jong-nam was booked on a 10.50 a.m. flight bound for his home in Macau, where the Chinese government kept a close watch on him and he would be much harder to reach. He was expected to arrive at Kuala Lumpur Airport to check in sometime around 9 a.m. City arrived at the airport early in the morning and met up with Mr. Chang at a coffee bar. It was here that she was told for the first time that this particular prank would be different, that there would be two pranksters instead of one. All the evidence we have suggests that City and Huang had never met before this day. Each of them had two handlers with her to keep an eye on things and to make sure the woman got to the right target. City remembers that this time, when the oily substance was spread on her hands, her handler told her to look away. She remembers that it smelled different than the oils they had used before. Kim Jong-nam entered the terminal. The handlers pointed him out. City went first, rubbing the oil onto his forehead, eyes, nose, and mouth. She quickly said sorry and ran away. She later described Jong-nam as looking stunned, but also afraid. Moments later, Huang followed. Early reports from the BBC indicate she actually used a cloth to rub his face instead of her hands. But they succeeded just as they had practiced. The two substances combined and turned into a chemical compound that ended Kim Jong-nam's life. City and Huang each hurried to the restroom to wash their hands. At one point in the security footage, both can be seen holding their hands out away from their body as if they were cautious about the substance on their hands. But it's not consistent. One of them touches her hair and one adjusts her eyeglasses. These little gestures, whatever hints the authorities had to guess at the state of mind of these two women, were scrutinized endlessly in the months that followed. Both women insisted they had no idea that they had a deadly toxin on their hands. Huang said that it was just that she didn't want to get any on her clothes. So as they ran to the restroom, their four handlers went that way as well. But the handlers had a different agenda. They changed their clothing, re-emerged, and right on schedule, rendezvoused with a group of diplomatic officials from North Korea. These officials hustled them through customs and security, getting them on a plane that flew to Jakarta. Then they flew to Dubai, then Vladivostok in Russia, and then finally back to Pyongyang, North Korea, safe from all authorities. City and Huang were now on their own, and airport security cameras had seen everything. City headed back to her masseuse job at the Flamingo to try to get back to her regular routine, but she was tracked down and arrested a couple days after the attack. Huang actually went back to the airport. She was under the impression that there was another prank to perform. She waited, but the producers never showed, and the cell phone number they had given her suddenly didn't work. When she went out to hail a cab, airport security noticed her and took her into custody. If they were master assassins, they didn't make any effort at a getaway. And within three days of the murder of Kim Jong-nam, they were both under arrest for the crime.
part two. VX Nerve Agent isn't something you can just go out and buy. It was developed in the 1950s at a British research facility called Porton Down. It was based on an insecticide that proved to be too dangerous for humans. At the facility, they had a code name for VX, Purple Possum. Porton Down is a place with an ominous history, and we're studying up on stories related to it for potential future episodes. Only a small handful of countries are known to possess any VX, and containing its spread is of serious business. Cuba was condemned for using it in the Angolan Civil War in the late 1980s, and not long ago, the United States bombed a pharmaceutical facility in Sudan because of intelligence that indicated it was producing VX for Iraq and Al-Qaeda. America has a large stockpile of it, but it's in the final stages of disposing of it. It's one of the most potent nerve agents known to man. The most infinitesimal amount on the skin can be lethal. Worse still, according to the CDC, VX is usually odorless and colorless. In its uncut form, it's thick like motor oil, but it can be diluted in a water supply to kill a great many people. Depending on how a victim comes in contact with it, symptoms can show up immediately or be delayed for as much as 18 hours. In the case of Kim Jong-nam, you can go from healthy to dead in less than an hour. There is an antidote, but obviously that doesn't help unless someone gets it to you in time. When the Malaysian authorities began their investigation, there was a North Korean chemist named Ri Jong-chul who was known to be living in Kuala Lumpur. It's believed that his government had placed him there, set him up with a home and a healthy allowance to live on. Remember how rare it is that the dictatorship of North Korea will allow anyone to leave the nation. Authorities took him into custody and searched his home on the theory he may have been the one to develop the VX used in the assassination. They removed several chemical agents, but if they found proof, they didn't publicize it. Now we'll come back to Ri Jong-chol later, but his case illustrates just how quickly the stakes in this investigation became global. The high-profile half-brother of North Korea's dictator, who'd been sheltered and protected by the Chinese government, who was possibly trading secrets with the CIA, and then was assassinated in Malaysia by a woman from Indonesia and another from Vietnam. How often does a single murder case involve six different nations right out of the gate? It was no big surprise that North Korean officials immediately made resounding denials of any complicity in Kim Jong-nam's death. Their ambassador to Malaysia went so far as to suggest that he had simply died of a heart attack, but an autopsy quickly put that theory to rest. So what about Sidi and Huang? Were they trained assassins and part of a conspiracy, or were they, as they claimed, innocent dupes participating in a fake prank show? The two women were charged with murder, pleaded not guilty, and their trial was going to hinge on this exact question. There was no denying they were at the airport or that they'd applied the components of VX to Kim Jong-nam's face. The trial would decide if they had done this knowingly, and if they were convicted, the sentence was mandatory. Death by hanging. The two women were provided with experienced, prominent defense attorneys. They stuck to their story, and there was plenty of evidence to back it up, especially countless text messages between themselves and their handlers, the ones pretending to be TV producers. 
The two women didn't know one another before that day at the airport. And as we said, their casual demeanor and dress, City's birthday celebration the night before, all indicate a belief that they weren't doing anything serious. And what about these others that they were involved with? Both sides of the case agreed that they'd had accomplices. The Malaysian police identified eight North Korean suspects. Four of them were confirmed to be at the airport that day, supervising City and Huang, but they'd escaped, hustled onto a plane like I'd mentioned, and now safely back in their home country. Three more suspects had taken shelter at North Korea's embassy, still within Malaysia's borders, but protected by international law. The last North Korean suspect still in the country was that chemist, Ri Jong-chol, who had been living so handsomely in Kuala Lumpur with the support of his government for reasons unknown. Just one week after the assassination, that same North Korean ambassador to Malaysia, who'd suggested a heart attack as the cause of death, now proclaimed that the guilty parties were already in custody, that City Aisha and Dong Chi Huang were responsible for everything, and that Malaysia was committing a human rights violation by keeping Ri Jong Chol in custody. After this spectacle, this ambassador was forced out of Malaysia. But the diplomatic situation escalated. Nine Malaysian nationals were in North Korea as the investigation began, and they were suddenly told that they couldn't leave. While all this was sanitized with official language about security and ongoing investigations, it sounds an awful lot like these two nations were engaging in some low-key hostage-taking for the purposes of leverage. After a few weeks of this, the suspects at the North Korean embassy were released to return home and Ri Jong-chol was released as well. A lack of evidence was the official explanation. On March 3rd, he was deported back to North Korea. And answering North Korea's final demand, the body of Kim Jong-nam was returned to his home country. Then, at last, Malaysia's nine citizens in North Korea were set free. This is the nightmare that Sidi and Huang were trapped in. Although the government vocally denied any deal-making, it looks very much like Malaysia made the difficult choice to protect some of its own citizens, but at the cost of making these two women scapegoats for the murder. The Malaysian police chief held a press conference where he described City and Huang, a hotel masseuse and a waitress with an accounting degree, as highly trained assassins. Like many others, they cited the security footage of the women hurrying to the restroom as irrefutable proof. Red notices were issued through Interpol for the four North Koreans who'd been seen at the airport that day and then slipped out of the country, which made them technically international fugitives. But there was little chance of them ever being caught outside their country again. The only people left facing punishment were City and Huang. Part 3 The trial began on October 2, 2017, before Judge Datuk Azimi Arifin. From the start, the prosecution was aggressive in their attempt to focus all the guilt on City and Huang. And those four suspects wanted by Interpol? The prosecutors wouldn't even say their names in court. The defense protested vehemently and continually attempted to introduce evidence, but the judge routinely sided with the prosecution. And in another strange wrinkle, the court didn't even refer to the victim by his real name, Kim Jong-nam. This was a trial about the murder of Kim Chol, 
the alias on his passport and Facebook page. The Malaysian justice system knew full well who was murdered, but persisted with the lie to keep a spotlight away from North Korea. Diplomacy with a violent and unpredictable nuclear power was proving to be more important than justice for two women who were facing the literal gallows. The prosecution only showed the security footage that backed up their case. The defense objected repeatedly. They'd requested the full footage from the authorities but were being stonewalled. It was only when someone leaked the footage to the Japanese media that the defense was even able to see it. They seized on multiple examples of the two women on camera acting like anything but professional killers. The prosecution would say, the women washed their hands so they must have known the substance was dangerous. But the defense would counter, why then didn't they dispose of their outfits? Why did they make no effort at all to evade security? Why did they go right back to their old routines and jobs after doing this deed in broad daylight? According to City and Huang, they had told multiple friends and colleagues in the week before the crime that they were making money as a part of a new prank show. But the police didn't follow up. They didn't interview any of these witnesses who could have supported their story. The defense found itself crippled again, either through negligence or outright sabotage. Despite all the text messages between the women and the fake producers, despite City and Huang themselves posting about their practice pranks on social media for weeks, the judge unilaterally decided that, since he didn't see a film crew at the airport, that it couldn't be a TV show. Now imagine that for a moment. Your life is on the line. Your only defense is that you were told you were on a show where the cameras would be hidden and the judge in your case doesn't believe you because he doesn't see any cameras. Kafka couldn't have written it any better. And let's talk about motive. What reason could these women possibly have had to assassinate Kim Jong-nam? Or for accepting the use of his alibi in the trial, why was Kim Chol, a fictional person who only existed on a passport and Facebook profile, so important to them that they would risk the death penalty to kill him in such a public spectacle? Now, I haven't told you the most astonishing part of the trial yet. City Aisha and Don Chi Huang were never informed by the court or by their own defense counsel who Kim Jong Nam really was. They had no idea what international disputes were erupting outside the courtroom. No idea why these fake TV producers had set them up to kill this individual. No one told them that he was the half-brother of North Korea's dictator. The Malaysian media knew. At a press conference, they asked the deputy public prosecutor about the possibility of a political conspiracy. He responded that he didn't care, that he hadn't seen any evidence of a conspiracy, that the North Koreans who escaped the country didn't have VX on their hands, and that none of that mattered to the cause of justice in this case. They had their killers, and with the eyes of the world on them, they were going to win the case. After multiple postponements, the prosecution finally finished presenting their side of the case after seven months. At this point in the Malaysian legal system, the judge has the option to either dismiss the case outright or allow it to continue with the defense's side. Judge Arafin took four months to make his decision. His judgment was 82 pages long and he read it out loud in court, taking two and a half hours to do so. But here's the short version. Because he saw the women hold their hands away from their body, he believed that they knew that they had a toxic substance on their hands. The trial, therefore, would continue. But it wouldn't be for seven months. 
seven more months for Sidi and Huang to stay in custody. Although they hadn't known one another before they were arrested, going through this ordeal together had forged a bond between them. With the whole world seemingly indifferent to their plight, they provided support for one another. In March 2019, they finally returned to the courtroom. Don Chi Huang was going to take the stand first to testify in her own defense. And then there was an extraordinary event. The prosecution suddenly asked the court with no explanation to withdraw the charges against Sidi Aisha. Huang's fellow defendant, her one friend through this ordeal, was told that she was to go free. Sidi, stunned, confused, and perhaps unwilling to trust the news at first, finally gave Huang a hug, stood up, and left the courthouse. A car was waiting for her, the first step in a journey to her home in a village in Indonesia. Now, Don Chi Huang was facing trial alone. So what had happened? It turns out that behind the scenes during all of this, the Indonesian government had been applying intense pressure on the Malaysian government, even sending a letter directly to Malaysia's attorney general requesting the release of their citizen. The government of Vietnam had made a request as well on behalf of Don Chi Huang, but an examination by journalists after the fact gives the impression that they simply didn't push as hard. Vietnam was in a delicate situation. Their government had much closer ties to North Korea than Indonesia did, and North Korea had been one of the strongest allies of the communist government in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Once again, the need to placate a rogue and violent country was having a direct impact on the case. Indonesia had no such ties with North Korea, so they were free to be as relentless as they wanted on behalf of one of their citizens. Huang had an emotional breakdown, dealing with the trauma of her responsibility for someone's death and having lost the one person in the world who was standing by her. But if she didn't testify in her own defense, then the defense had no case and she would hang. But she was in no state to take the stand and wanted to refuse. So the trial was postponed once again because of her deteriorating health. A few weeks later, everyone returned to the courtroom, but there were some new faces there. Diplomats from the Vietnamese embassy. Speculation erupted immediately. Why were they there? Had Vietnam overcome its fear of offending North Korea? Would Huang be released just like Sidi? The news was good, but perhaps not great. Huang was not going to be let completely off the hook. Maybe the Malaysian officials needed to save face to prove that they had convicted someone in the face of this highly visible debacle. Don Chi Huang was made an offer. The murder charge would be dropped and she would no longer have to fear the death penalty. But she would have to plead guilty to a lesser charge causing harm by dangerous weapons or other means. The charge carried a sentence of three years and four months in prison, but Huang would get a one-third reduction in the sentence if she took the deal. Now don't forget, by this point she had already been in custody for more than two years, and this would count toward her sentence, but she would still need to spend more time in jail. But what choice did she have? And so she agreed. When she walked out of the courtroom guilty in handcuffs and on her way to prison, Huang had a giant smile on her face. For the first time in this whole ordeal, she had a sign that there was someone out there helping her case. And then one month later, on May 3, 2019, she was released and flew home to Vietnam. A horde of reporters were waiting for her, asking her how she felt about this ordeal. 
With extraordinary poise, she spoke briefly, saying that all she thought about in prison was her family, her country, and her desire to go home. She even hoped to resume her acting career. For Huang, like City, it was only now that they were free, that they learned who had really died on that day back at the airport, and just how high stakes the negotiations had become over their fate. There was sorrow and fresh guilt, but for the first time, there was an opportunity to get on with her life. Huang, in particular, became something of a celebrity in her own country, but it wasn't necessarily the kind of fame that most people would want. Many people in Vietnam still saw her as responsible and didn't believe she was so completely in the dark about the assassination. Huang said that before her ordeal, she had seen the world through rose-colored glasses, that no matter what she suffered, she believed that people were inherently good. But now, she couldn't help but live more cautiously and not trust so willingly. And could any of us blame her? Part 4 We mentioned the media rumors that Siti Aisha and Don Chi Huang were involved in the sex trade in Malaysia. We didn't spend much time on it, first because there isn't evidence one way or the other, and second because it has no relevance to their story. They don't have to pass some moral test in order to deserve justice. The only reason it might matter is if we want to look at how few options these women had to make money, to support their families, and try to make a life for themselves. And when someone is denied opportunity on one hand and then presented with a chance for easy money on the other, they can end up making choices they might not have imagined for themselves. The term hospitality industry may be a euphemism. The promise of attention and affection from beautiful women at a restaurant, at a massage table, at a nightclub can lure in travelers, either implicitly or explicitly promised as a part of the package you pay for at a hotel. And hotels are more likely to have a supply of women for this industry if those women don't have alternatives for work. And in a foreign country with no safety net, City and Huang were vulnerable to exactly this kind of lie that they were told by these fake TV producers. It must have sounded so appealing, so much so that they looked past any odd or suspicious details. How could they have possibly imagined the real purpose of this whole fake enterprise? We called this episode the women who were pawns to everyone, and I don't think there's any clearer lesson to draw from their experience. The jobs they had, the ease with which they were exploited, and then the terrifying speed with which their fate was buried in a jumble of diplomatic maneuvers. These two lives were just never a priority. There was always some purpose someone considered more important. And the men who organized this killing, the men who ordered it, the men who decided to negotiate the diplomatic wins using the fate of these women as just another card to play, most of them, well, will never know their names. They're protected, whether by the belligerence or shamelessness of North Korea, or by the excuse used countless times throughout history that they were just doing their jobs. I don't see these two young women as any more naive or foolish than anyone in their 20s, looking for fun, attention, and enough money to get somewhere in their lives, and to enjoy a little taste of luxury once in a while. They'll always carry the memory of the role they played in someone's death, and they've certainly been punished. But as North Korea's dictatorship didn't end when the last major threat to Kim Jong's rule was snuffed out at the airport, there's an ongoing story that needs telling, 
When women like Sidi and Huang can come terrifyingly close to a hangman's noose for what they believed was a prank. In a way, they could be used as unwitting assassins for the same reason that they could be pressured to provide more hospitality than just a massage. Sidi and Huang wound up trapped because the world they lived in wanted pawns, pawns who could be manipulated, maneuvered to serve and protect more important pieces, and, when the time came, sacrificed. We may feel some relief that these women escaped death, but that is perhaps small comfort when you consider a much darker truth. If everything that happened here could happen again, then the story isn't over. Thank you for listening to My Dark Path. I'm M.F. Thomas, the creator and host. I produce the show with Ashley Whitesides and Evadine Hendricks. Our creative director is Dom Purdy. This story was prepared for us by Roseanne Sinclair, the creator and host of a wonderful podcast called California Dreaming. Our senior story editor is Nicholas Serkettle, and our fact checker making his debut with My Dark Path is Nicholas Abraham. Big thank yous to them and the entire My Dark Path team. Please take a moment and give My Dark Path a five-star rating wherever you're listening. It really helps the show, and we love to hear your feedback. Again, thanks for walking the dark paths of history, science, and the paranormal with me. Until next time, good night. who discovered the North Korean assassins in January of 1968 related. How were the hikers who discovered the North Korean assassins in January of 1968 related?